my accident that I had, I was two millimetres from a clean break at my C2 level and I was instantly struck by fear. You know, what if that two millimetres hadn't have been there? What would my life be like? Do I even want to ride a bike anymore? I don't know how I'm going to go about doing it. If I get back on the bike, all these what ifs came into play. My coach just simply said to me, you're asking the right question, but you're using the wrong word. Don't ask what if, ask what is. And the simple difference is, is is the tangible, real information you can use today to make a decision if is fear-based, emotion-based. And emotion clouds our ability to see the information to make a decision. For me, that two millimetres, I was like, what if that two millimetres hadn't have happened? Whereas the is of that situation was simply the two millimetres saved my life. You know, so you can look at one situation from two vastly different standpoints that will land you in two very different places. That is Australian cycling legend Anna Mears. And this is episode 339 of Better Than Yesterday. G'day and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsburg. Thank you so very much for being here today. This is a show called Better Than Yesterday. We just aim to make today better than yesterday. Something you hear on this show today will, guaranteed, make today better than it was the day before. This show comes out twice a week. Mondays I speak with a guest, Fridays I speak with you. Uh, my name is Osha Ginsburg. I'm a TV guy and a book writing guy and a gardening guy and a wicking bed building guy and a dirt moving guy. I've moved about a ton and a half, I think two tons of dirt this morning with some floppy plastic buckets. And that was really good. I was listening to my nerdy new book about social evolution while I dug things. It was good. Anyway, so that's what I do um, when I'm not making this podcast. And uh, yeah, I'm grateful you're here. I'm really grateful you're here. There's 338 other shows that you can go listen to. That's 338 other interviews. I don't know how many other ones that I've done that's just me, but there's a shitload. So please go ahead and get in. Thank you, everybody that sat down and had a good, bloody, long, hard look in the mirror with me and James Bradley last week. It was a fucking hard episode to listen to, but it's a really, really, really important one. If you haven't listened to it, please it's really important. Listen to the episode I did with James Bradley because it's so goddamn important that we just take a bite and taste how bitter it is and go, okay, what do we do now? Because shit, we got to move. Anyway, it's a good one. So thank you very much for everyone that did write and let me know how they felt about that one. Send Osher email at gmail.com is my email address. I know a lot of people really want me to make a video for them. Even though we're in lockdown, I'm on the hustle because I'm trying to make work happen like everybody else. So there's not a lot of time to make videos for people. So uh, I know it's, it's quite a thing, but I'm sorry, I, I might not get to you. My apologies if I don't make your video for your thing. Sorry about that. I hope you're okay. The world's pretty scary. Fuck me. <laughs> I opened up my phone this morning on the loo. Like, come on, you look at your phone on the loo. I look at my phone on the loo. I woke up this morning, I look at the phone, and I was like, holy crap, yep. Shut the phone off. <laughs> it's scary. There's a lot of scary stuff happening. But 
you know, just got to remember it's like the same. It's like we talk about this all the time in the show. We have to be aware of what we can actually control. You and I, you and I cannot control American political discourse. We can't. We can feel empathy. But you and I in Australia, we cannot do a thing about it. I can worry about my brother that lives there and his husband and be worried for them. But I can't change the situation. No amount of worry that I have will change it. We can most definitely recognise how similar crimes that have started the uh, the race riots in the States, very similar crimes have happened here in our country of Australia and continue to happen in our country of Australia. And we can use our voices to stand in solidarity to other Australians who have been or are being violently oppressed in this country, be they being so by police or uh, other systemized oppression or bureaucratic systems designed to oppress them. We can be in solidarity with those human beings who are our neighbours. We can do something about that. Um, But we can only do what we can with what we have where we are. It is horrible to see. It's awful to see. And rightly, it will make you feel sick inside when you watch a video of someone being murdered by the police. It's horrendous. However, sitting there constantly scrolling through this kind of snuff film of live rolling coverage of race riots is probably not the healthiest thing to do. Like all news, you've got to remember that it's a product. Just like the fast food fries which have been designed specifically to tickle a part of your brain that makes you want to keep eating them. If you've read the book Fast Food Nation, you'll know. It took years of research. There's a particular chemical that they've created that tickles the exact spot, the exact spot on your taste buds that make you go, oh, shit, and you've got to grab another one. It's just a switch they flicked. It doesn't make it tastier or not. It's just flicked a switch that makes you want to grab another fry. Similarly, news is designed to make you keep watching, keep clicking, and it only tends to ever focus on the extremes and the sensational can then kind of create a self-fulfilling prophecy as we saw in the great run of toilet paper at the start of this year in that news stories about no toilet paper led to more people buying toilet paper which led to more news stories about toilet paper not being there yeah so by all means get informed and get into action do what you can and it is important to take care of yourself And remember that you cannot pour from an empty cup, like Carla, my makeup artist, always tells me. You cannot pour from an empty cup. So recharge where you can. Eat right, sleep right, move right, connect right, connect with other people. If you don't do those four things, nothing is right. That can also involve moving a lot of dirt around which I did today, and I felt a lot better afterwards. If you need me, I'm around. Send Osher email at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Instagram, Osher underscore Ginsburg. I hope you're doing okay. Before we get into my guest today, if cycling is your thing, if stories about triumphant female athletes is something that you'd like to hear, perhaps you would like to check out a previous episode of this show, episode 184 with Dr. Bridie O'Donnell. She's been on the show twice. Uh, This was her second appearance. She was also on episode 64 and 65. It was a double header. But uh, 184 was particularly after uh, an extraordinary event where she broke a world record. I won't need long 
to convince you to listen to the show. In fact, there's about eight seconds of just listening to Bridie. It'll make you go, oh, fuck yeah, I've got to hear that. This is Dr. Bridie O'Donnell, and this is why you've got to listen to episode 184. I may not be many things. I don't have a lot of physiological talent, but I am consistent, relentless, and that they are my skills. So this is why it was the best event for me. You can find that podcast where you found this one. So let me tell you about my guest today. Anna Mears is the most decorated female track cyclist of all time. She's just written a new book. It's called Now, and you can get it where you get your books. At the age of 11, Anna began cycling competitively after seeing Kathy Watt win a gold medal at the 1994 Commonwealth Games. Since then, Anna has returned that favour and similarly inspired others to follow her onto the track, onto the bike. Anna Mears went on to represent Australia at four consecutive Olympic Games, 2004, 2008, 2012, 2016. She won medals at each of those games, six in total, two gold medals, one silver medal, three bronze. She is the only Australian, the only Australian athlete to reach the podium four Olympics in a row. Such is her standing as an athlete. Anna was chosen to be Australia's captain and flag bearer at the 2016 Rio Olympics. Now, Anna is no stranger to triumph over adversity. In 2007, just seven months before the Beijing Olympics, Anna broke her neck during a crash that happened in a race in Los Angeles. What followed was a miraculous triumph over an insurmountable challenge. Her determination and drive to rehabilitate and rebuild her body is the stuff of legend, just one of the many parts of her journey that she covers in the book. She's on Twitter and Instagram at Anna Mears, M-E-A-R-E-S, so Anna, A-N-N-A-M-E-A-R-E-S, Anna Mears. There's a lot of hubbub made about outstanding Australian athletes, We tend to idolise athletes a lot in our country. And when you look at the record, when you look at the influence, it is hard to go past the fact that Anna Mears is simply one of the most profoundly successful and influential athletes our country has ever produced. It was nothing short of brilliant to spend time with her the other day. And I'm sure you'll understand why I'm just in awe of her achievements on and off the track. If anything, just to listen to how Anna handles the times when she doesn't win. We talk a lot about when you win a gold medal, but to win a gold medal, you've got to have not won a lot. For example, she talks about in this conversation how when she came second at the London Olympics in the track sprint, in the final, she lost by one one thousandth of a second. And in her own words, she describes it, that is less than the width of a line of a pencil on a piece of paper. How can you take a loss like that and use it instead of letting it beat her? There's so much in this conversation that I know I certainly got a lot from and I cannot wait that you're going to listen to it. And I'm so grateful that Anna was generous enough to give so much of herself in this conversation that she could then give it to you. This podcast really made me want to go and ride my bike a lot. Uh, It'll probably do the same for you. Enjoy this conversation with Anna Mears. Good afternoon, Anna. Hello, Osha. How are you? Um, Thank you so much for being so patient. As I'm sure you're totally aware, everything's been quite offset as far as baby naps go right now. <laughs> yeah. I missed an interview last week because I thought, I'll just sit on the couch and I closed my eyes for like a second and I woke up like an hour later and I was shitting myself. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, we're trying to get some garden beds in the front. There's a bunch of rain coming, so we're trying to get these garden beds in. And I ordered uh, 775 kilograms of the wrong kind of railway sleepers. Oh, shit. And a, a crane dropped them off. <laughs> Don't worry. My wife only mentioned the mistake once, and I'm sure that's the very last time I'll ever hear about it, Anna. I'm sure. Yes, once is enough. That's, I'm sure. That's it. No, it's okay. <laughs> I, I, I deserve it. I rushed through and... Uh, that's a bugger. My focus has been very helpful in my career, yet there's sometimes when I can focus so intently, I don't look up. And then yeah. by the time I'm, oh, I'm done, I look up, I'm like, oh, shit, I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> So I have to kind of manage that as I go. And unfortunately, it's a bit frustrating to Audrey trying to deal with someone who lives like that. But that's it. Are you going to make a new plan with the new sleepers? <laughs> Look, there's now concrete involved. <laughs> there's all kinds of things. There's corner posts. There's... Oh, look at all these skills you're going to learn. Yeah, for a gardener, I'm like a great TV presenter, Anna. <laughs> I ain't going to lie. Now, firstly, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I know what it's like when baby's involved. Uh, my pleasure. I've got a uh, great friend upstairs taking care of my daughter for me. So Right. And um, I, straight away, I thought Evelyn, Stevie Wright, has already written the best birthday song for her ever. Really? Don't you know it? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> You know, I probably would once I hear it because I'm the sort of person with music. I'm like, you know, I'm not a big fan of Metallica. I don't think I like them. They're too heavy. And then I hear a song. I'm like, I love this song. And they're like, this is Metallica. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Hang on. I'll see if I can play it for you. Hang on. Where is it? There it is. Is it Evie part one? Yeah, there it is. Remember, this is like, it's old though. <laughs> yeah, great track. Yeah, see, recognise the song, don't recognise the artist connection, yeah. so makes me a good cyclist, see? <laughs> well, honestly, last night when I was on Zwift and I was pushing out some um, FTP intervals, the second lot of intervals, the Viking metal really helps. I'm get the headphones on. <laughs> <laughs> I've never liked music when I'm riding. And I'm just new to Swift and even doing it, I, I actually really like being able to focus on the screen rather than music. Right. Even um, when I was competing, the music I chose was more lyrical based as opposed to like beat based because uh -huh. I didn't need any more amping up. You're just, already there. Yeah. You're already there. <laughs> I think we might have crossed paths extraordinarily briefly. I don't know. Were you there the day that Brody O'Donnell did the indoor yeah, one-hour record. I commentated it. That's where I met you that day. Yes, yeah. That was a cracking day. So we have been in the same room at the same time once, but I'm I'm so happy to get on the Skype with you to get you on the podcast today because there is there is a lot to talk about. There are few Australian athletes. There are probably there's few world athletes that have achieved what you've achieved, and none the least a, a, a single leg press of 250 <laughs> kilos, which is <laughs> eye-watering. <laughs> Well, I can't do that now. No, I'll bet. It's nice to have that to look back on. As my brother always tells me, squats get what's. So. Very true. Very true. <laughs> um, I think now is an extraordinary time to speak to you because not everyone who's listening to this is a cyclist. There's probably a lot of people listening who haven't ridden a bike since they were a kid. Very few people listening to this are Olympians. Probably half of the people listening to this are mothers. 
but everybody right now is currently dealing with something that you had to deal with on an enormous level when you retired from something that had taken over your life for so long. There are so many people listening right now, so many people who have been thrust into unemployment or underemployment or questioning their role and purpose in their community because their industry might have folded over, like if you work at the movies or if you play in bands or if you work in the theatre, who knows when you're ever going to work again. And you might have gone through your entire life as, no, I'm the person that runs the lights at the theatre or I'm the person that takes the tickets at the movies or I'm the person that, you know, works at this restaurant. And it might be a long time before any of that ever comes back. And suddenly the definition of who you are is coming into question. And I know that is something you faced at a huge level after you retired after Brazil. So your story, I think, can be extraordinarily helpful for a lot of people right now. So I'm really grateful that I can speak with you. You have obviously done a huge amount of heavy lifting in the psychological sense since you retired. How are you going today at the moment? How are things? Uh, I'm actually in a really good spot at the moment. And that's not short because of any reason other than I have worked hard to be in a good spot. And I'm really glad that I'm here and I'm really glad that I have worked to do it. And in regards to like my story and my book, we, we actually really considered whether we should even release it given the circumstances. But we just felt that the themes of the book were too topical not to. And I was probably in a good spot where I was able to articulate not just the experience, but the emotional response to the experience, the lessons from the experience and how to move forward from those experiences. And it takes time to nut that out. And I just feel like it's relevant and applicable to, like you said, to so many people and so many different avenues that hopefully it can reach some people. Yeah. Uh, but for me now, in a really good spot, in some ways, I like being isolated because I'm a bit introverted. I love being able to have my baby girl just to kind of, my goal is just to make a smile each day and make sure that she's uh, fed and healthy and happy. So in a good spot. I did some work today with my uh, longtime collaborators, my makeup artists and my um, my stylist. And the three of us have worked together for a long time. And I was just telling them like, yeah, lockdown is weird and it sucks and not working strange, but I get to wake up every day with Wolfie at baby o'clock and take him all the way through to his morning nap and let Audrey rest and just be there and giggle around on the floor and sing Cypress Hill songs with him and it's extraordinary. Yeah. You can't worry about an economy and an environment and the fabric of society falling apart when you're like, okay, this baby wants my attention now. I guess I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think she's really taught me to be present too. And uh, even that can be a skill that's hard learned as well because we are so driven by things that we've learned from in our past and where we don't want to be and where we want to be in our future that often we can overlook the little things of today that can. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com bring joy or that can springboard us into tomorrow and and next week so she's definitely kept me present mm. but she's also slowed me down as well like I'm so used to running like a bull at a gate you know chasing really small time margins and working at the absolute pinnacle of everything that I do that you know slowing down and actually just sitting with her I had to learn to do that because I, I haven't just stopped for a long time well that's what it takes to be a professional athlete who can win at the level that you compete, it really is down to hundredths of a second, which is the heartbreaking, heartbreaking thing about it, that especially in a four-year Olympic cycle, you know, you can put every ounce of effort you possibly can in for four years to lose by the width of a tyre in a bicycle race. And it's just, if you're a swimmer, it's the length of a fingernail. You know, it really is. And that's just... My goodness, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I've, um, in our discipline, it's to the thousandth of a second. So God. it's the width of a lead pencil line drawn on a piece of paper. And I have <sighs> been involved in races where I have won and lost by that margin. So you think about four years of preparation to come down to the width of a lead pencil line. It's, it's pretty intense. <laughs> oh, my God. So uh, to win by that, or to lose by that, like how can you even weigh up the value of the win or the loss, you know? like. <laughs> uh, well, when you win, you think, thank goodness, it's a big foof moment. Yeah. <laughs> and when you lose, you're like, seriously, seriously, like how mm. can they even pick that margin? My God. Um, but they can. They can. My, my goodness me. You live in South Australia at the moment, don't you? Yes, in Radelaide. <laughs> Adelaide, it sure is. I've spent my time there. I lived there for a while. But you weren't originally from there, were you? What part of Queensland were you from? A small town called Middlemount in central Queensland in the Bowen Basin in the coal industry area. And uh, yeah, just grew up one of four kids in the Mears family, baby of the four. And um, we were always growing up outdoors in rural Australia, rural country, Queensland. If the sun was up, we were allowed outside. And if the sun was down, we had to be back. That was our, our general rule of thumb. It was a great place to grow up for that reason. Yeah, I'll, I'll bet. And I, I talk about it often, the, like the first freedom machine that I ever had, the, when I got my first BMX at the age of eight, suddenly I could go places that I was no longer limited by my two feet and the distance that I could walk within halfway to sunset because I had to turn around and come back. <laughs> you know, I could now explore far and wide. Do you recall, like, did, were you rolling with a crew of, uh, of similar BMX age kids? Yeah, we were big in the BMX scene. We loved BMX. But I remember the moment when I traded my 
my little girl's bike, so to speak. You know, I had the spoky dogs and the the tassels out the handlebars and the flower basket and the orange flag up the back. The flag. I tried, oh, yeah, man. The flag. Everyone was up. The flag was going to be the king. The flag was, what are we, like we are four-wheel drive crossing the Simpson Desert? We don't need a flag. I had the flag. How good were the flags? Um, but I, I remember when I swapped that for a BMXer, a little pit bike. And I went from being a lady of leisure to a lady of speed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Would have been about five or six. Oh, slick. Was it a hand-me-down or was it a was it yours? Uh, the BMX was a hand-me-down. I never got anything new bike-wise till I was about 19, 20, and I could afford to buy it myself. So all the time you started, you were competing pretty early, like 11, 12, weren't you? Yeah. So yeah. that was all on someone else's bike? Yep. Borrowed bikes from the club, and then when my big sister Carrie grew out of her bike, I got that as a hand-me-down. And um, even my junior world titles, I won on uh, her bike, not mine. Wow. Yeah. Far out. And at what point in your life do you remember the first time someone kind of tapped you on the shoulder and said, hey, Anna, you've got something the other kids don't have? I was 13, and I had just quit cycling, and I kept having to go into the cycling club because my sister Carrie wanted to do it. So every weekend we had to make the trip into town and I kept sitting on the fence line, just watching her race and Reg Tucker, my first coach just kept coming up to me uninvited to ask me why I wasn't on a bike. And he could see that I could read a race well. And he eventually convinced me to come back and he knew there was something different about me, but he always says now he he didn't think it, it was what it turned out to be. So he was probably the first person that really believed that I had something. 13 is a really common age for girls to drop out of sport. Can you relate to that? Absolutely. There was so much going on in life. Life was fun. And to give up weekends and to wake up early and be dedicated and tired and fatigued and you know, miss the sleepovers with friends and the discos and all the social elements of a young child's life was a tough ask. But I was also a bit of a nerd. I loved my school. Even though I was academically well inclined, I still loved my sport. So I kind of had a taste of cycling for two years and I thought, no, nah, I'm going to chase academics. And then eventually it was Reggie who, who convinced me to get back on the, on the treadley. <laughs> <laughs> and at, at what point did it look like that you know, as high school starts to round out, at what point did it start to look like this could be a career to pursue? The year I was 16 turning 17. High school was hard for me to be able to fit training in, not just with school, but with my parents' takeaway shop as well. We had a barbecue takeaway shop that we had to work seven days a week or seven years. So my high school days was get up at four, train from five to seven. I'd have a half hour nap in the back of their car at the back of the chook shop. Then I'd go to school After school, I'd do my shift, and then after my shift, I would do my track training and catch a lift home with them about 8, 39 o'clock. So my days were full. I got a lot of detentions at high school because I didn't get my homework done often. (laughs) But I was 16. I'd won the Junior World Championships after, you know, being involved with the sport for five, six years by that stage. And it was then that I thought maybe I could make something of it. I wasn't convinced, but just maybe. Like many people in lockdown, I've been trying to finish Netflix at the, <laughs> at the moment. And there's a really decisive moment in The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan doco, where he just plainly says, if I didn't have the competitive nature of my big brother, if I didn't have that, I wouldn't be where I am. What was it about the fact that your sister also cycled that do you think 
got you where you are? And what was it about that work ethic, that seven days a week, this is a chook shop, this is what we do, we're doing barbecue chickens for the people, let's do it. What was it about that, do you think, that carried you through the, the tough bits of your career? Uh, well, in regards to my sister, the first thing is I was always competitive against her, even if it was calling top bunk, yes. uh, if it was the last bit of food on the table, shotgun for the car. Like it was always a competition and I was always really small compared to her. So I really had to fight hard because she didn't have to physically do too much to just push me aside kind of thing. And even though we did BMX, we also did karate. So we were very physical. Our fights weren't just girly fights. Like we fully got into it. So neither of us backed down and both of us were pretty stubborn on that front. And so when we both got into the same sport, even though she really did protect me a lot, I always wanted to be better than her because she was already really, really good because she was physically more developed than I was. She was stronger, therefore she was faster. And Reggie always said I was like the ugly duckling. (laughs) Eventually I was going to get my moment, but I had to wait a long time. Um, So I think... Also, where I fell in the in the family lineup, I was the baby of four kids, so there was no need for protection or this big sibling, big sister role that I had to play. Like I was just into all my siblings' faces all the time. <laughs> so I think that's just basically where that came from. But in regards to the dedication of the chook shop and the, the work ethic, I know I have my dad's stubborn nature, but I know that also I have my mum's just kind of get in and get it done type mentality as well. My mum never complained. And I had a conversation with both of them when I was young, you know, and I, I also witnessed them work hard. You know, that chook shop was open 12 hours a day. They were there earlier and later in cleanup and preparation. And they were only doing that for me, really, to be able to pay for the bikes and to pay for the trips and the travel. And in some ways I felt bad. So I almost needed to work just as hard to warrant the spend. Wow. <laughs> they must have felt pretty good though once that investment paid off. Because like my eldest, she's 16 and you only get one chance to put that amount of investment in to their their development in their high school years. And, you know, once they kind of hit escape velocity at 18, 19, they're pretty much, they're in the direction they were heading and they just keep, usually keep going in that direction. So I understand why they would have done that because you really only get one chance to put that kind of investment in. How did they feel once your career started to take off? Did they they knock the chook shop back to close on Sundays or did they? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. No, they, they kept it running because even though I had kind of made it by getting a uh, scholarship to the AIS and moving down to Adelaide and you know being offered, my accommodation was covered, my meals were covered three times a day. I was still working two jobs here in Adelaide when I moved, but if I didn't get work or shifts and I didn't get money for the week, I couldn't put fuel in the car. Like I really was, you know, living week to week. And if I didn't get work, I was ringing mum and dad, you know, I'm real sorry, but can I borrow some money? I'm short this week. I'll pay you back. I remember I couldn't even take $20 out an ATM one week because I think it was $19.80 I had in my account. So I had to walk in, pay the bank withdrawal fee to be able to withdraw, you know, $18. (laughs) Yeah. It was never easy. And mum and dad are are very hardworking people. And my dad was very strict when we grew up as well. And so they would just had this mindset that when they committed to something, it was whole hog or nothing. 
once we had made it past uh, my first Olympic Games in 2004 was when they decided to sell the chicken shop. They sold it at a loss just so they could get out because they were exhausted. They never had a holiday in that seven-year period. Mum worked through a hernia operation, you know, just those sorts of things you you don't forget, but at the time you don't realise the enormity of their sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. But now as a parent you get it, don't you? Oh, yeah, I'm screwed if Evelyn decides to do cycling because it's just <laughs> well, I know the standard. Well, whatever she decides to do, you know, the weekends that I've spent at Dancer Steadford's Anna and the travel around the dance, she doesn't do as much anymore. But when she was younger, there's never a question because yeah. if this is what you want to do and you love doing it and this is where your friends are and this is what you're about, absolutely, well, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure it happens. Let's go. Yeah, I think that's the key there. You said what she loves to do. And I hope I can give my daughter every experience to find that because I was fortunate that my parents offered me that. Yeah. What's it like when you get to the AIS? I can only imagine what you were 19, 20 when you got there. You're pretty young. And suddenly you're around all these other hot, ripped, super good (laughs) at what they do athletes. We hear all the stories about the athletes' villages <laughs> and games time. Do people keep their eye on the ball, so to speak, or is it? What's it like? What's the vibe like? Uh, they don't always keep their eye on the ball. That's for sure. It's uh, it's actually very challenging to keep your eye on the ball. There's so much distraction. When I moved to the AIS, the cycling program was actually independent to the facility in Canberra, so right. I moved to Adelaide. So I only had cyclists. And cricketers at the time and their bodies aren't generally the athletic bodies we see today from that era <laughs> when I came into the program and it actually was a tough go you know I came into a program that was heavily male dominated with big egos and big competition for selection spots and it was really kind of cutthroat there wasn't a lot of women my sister Carrie was one of only two or three women there at the time yeah, we were, were pretty low in numbers in that regard. But in terms of what you were saying, you know, my, I recall my first Olympics experience in Athens and I was put into the bottom floor apartment of the, the same building that the swimmers were in. And this oh was God. like when Grand Hackett and yeah. Thorpe were there. Yeah. And our lounge room had the door entry and outside the door entry was the elevator. Everyone had to catch that elevator to go to their room. So we rearranged our lounge room so that the couch was right in line with that door and we pinned it open so we could see all of the swimmers as they came in and out, Thorpe, Hackett, you know, all those crew. But it's, it's just gobsmacking, you know, because – you honestly feel like you get transported from being in your lounge room to being inside a television screen or a set. And it just feels so surreal to start with until you start to comprehend that these are people just like you who have dedicated and worked just as hard that they're no real, not really that different. But initially, yeah, it's like, <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> so you touched on something I would like to talk to you about. As you got to the AIS and the cycling program, you said male-dominated, but what did you first start to notice around the difference about the way that the male athletes carry themselves or were allowed to get away with versus what the female athletes were allowed to get away with as far as treating other people in certain ways? Yeah, well, I'll probably start that answer with saying that under Reggie, my first coach, I was actually the first female that he coached. So I fell into a big group of guys, both my age and older, and 
they were all very respectful. Everyone was there for the right reasons. Reggie kept everyone well and truly in line. It's very old school coach in that regard. So when I moved to the AIS and the environment was heightened in terms of what was on offer, the competition to get it and what was required to achieve that made the environment even more intense. You know, we, we were going through harassment classes so that the guys and girls learn how to interact with each other. We even had the guys training at different times in the gym to the girls who would get up at six o'clock so that tensions would not be you know, raised. And we really had to learn how to interact with each other. It was almost like the guys were competing every day at training to beat each other before they even got to the competition track where competition actually started. For them, it started every day at training. So when I came in the program, I don't think the culture was very good to start with. And it took a really long time to see that change where ultimately by the time I left the team, that daily training environment became so protected that everyone was supportive to give each other the best opportunity to put Australia's best cyclists on the track. Whereas that competition was happening well before the big comp days when I first moved in. There's obviously now, I'm so happy that here we are in 2020 and we have come so far in the way that male and female athletes are treated. We've still got uh, forever to go as far as prize money goes and as far as sponsorship money and coverage goes as far as press. Yet it's still a factor, and I'll, I'll use surfing as an example. It's still a factor that the highest paid female surfer in the world might not be the best female surfer in the world, but she'll be the one that looks the best in a bikini. And that's, you know, pretty much everyone who's walked past an Alana Blanchard poster will know that. I'm not saying she's not a great surfer. She's an amazing surfer. But because she looks great in a bikini, she'll always earn, mo- earn more money than perhaps a better surfer who may not look as great in a bikini. And that's fine. That's just bodies are different. When did you first start to notice the difference between how your appearance played a role in your success versus what, what the men were facing? Well, my first experience with body image was a really positive one at the AIS. Because when I moved down, the first thing was I had to get, you know, the DEXA scans, the, you know, the skin pinch tests, weight, all that sort of stuff. And I remember stepping on the scales and the coach at the time, Martin Bress, looking over my shoulder to see what the number was. And I thought to myself, oh my God, he's not going to be impressed. I'm going to be going on a diet, all this sort of stuff. And the first thing he said to me was, you need to eat more food. You need to put on weight. Like that really contradicts everything that socially you see in magazines and that you become stereotypically familiar with of a female body. And then really the first time I ever experienced what I look like in terms of comparative to another athlete, not necessarily the men in our team because our sport's never been big in terms of sponsorship dollars and profile, was Vicky Pendleton coming up against um, my British rival in Vicky Pendleton who was glamorous who was physically very different to me. She was tall and quite skinny. I'm short and stocky. And going into London, when the rivalry was starting to really take hold and build, the media started to take hold of the differences they could correlate between the two of us, Aussie versus Brit, and the physical nature of our sport too, but also the tension that we had in our own relationship and rivalry as a result of competition over the years. I remember one of the headlines was just plain and simply broomstick versus lipstick. And I have never before been stopped in my tracks to feel so unattractive or be judged in such a way that was not even relatable to what I did as a profession. 
And how I got over that was simply my manager said to me, Anna, there are so many more uses for a broomstick than lipstick, so don't worry about that. (laughs) At least I felt useful. But yeah, Victoria was the glamour queen of the British, not just cycling team, but the British Olympic team. And she was featured in Vogue. She was featured in all these incredible magazines and I was not. (laughs) And that was okay for me because it's not me. I don't have that image. It's not, I'm not comfortable in that way. Often you'll see me swim in board shorts and bikinis anyway. And then to step out onto a track where your body is covered by one millimeter thick piece of lycra from head to toe and be judged by the crowd, by social media at this stage, really prompted me to kind of put restrictions around what I engage with how accessible I made myself to people and how much social media I interacted with because it wasn't just me impacted by that. It was my family. My big sister, who's terribly protective, Tracy, she would ring me and she goes, have you read this article? Uh, No, I haven't. I don't want to read the article, but I can put you in touch with someone if you need to vent (laughs) because I don't want to be aware of whatever is in that article. And so I had to be very select in that way. I am so sorry that you went through that. I remember it and when you are so focused on those, crikey, 10 seconds of your life, you've been working every goddamn day for 14 years, what, what, 2004, I'm just trying, terrible maths, like a long time, all right? Yeah, yeah. And you have dedicated every waking hour and sleeping hour, because you want to get good sleep to recover, to these 10 seconds of your life. And it's being minimized to the point of comparing you to a, a cleaning implement, Mm. And you, you are of no value because you don't look the same as this other person. God damn it. I'm so sorry you went through that. Oh, that's okay. I appreciate that. But I don't know if you remember the Australian Story documentary that was done after the London Olympics. I actually interviewed that journalist that wrote that article. And he emphatically apologized because he just simply justified it by saying, oh, I was just having fun. I just, I didn't think that they would read it. I didn't think that it would hurt them. I was joining in with the vibe and the feel at the time. And it was similar, you know, after I won my gold in London, I remember I had a lot of hate mail come in from UK citizens and I replied to, I I set a deadline of 10 emails a day. I replied to every single hate mail that I got and it took me over a year to do it. And a lot of those people just came back and said, I'm so sorry. I had no idea you'd read it, let alone reply. I just needed somewhere to vent. And, and people just aren't aware that as soon as you put it out there, it can be accessed by that person and affect that person. So, yeah, there was still 5% of the emails I replied to that just plain came back and said, no, nah, nothing you can say can change my opinion of you. And then I was like, fine, I hit the delete button. <laughs> Far out. Goodness me. As you go through life as an, as an elite athlete, certainly once you've got that Olympic gold hanging around your neck and it's got some other Olympic friends and a few world championship <laughs> friends, you, your neck started to get weighed down. Do you find people treat you differently? Do you find that you've got more latitude in a social situation, whereas other people may have to use, um, just for example, more manners or people are subservient to you? Like, Do you find that things change a little? Things definitely change, but not in the way that I I think you think because people to start with didn't recognize me in a social setting because they're used to me being in a helmet, in lycra, sweating. And then when I turn up socially acceptably dressed (laughs) and just engaging in a normal conversation, they don't realize who I am. And when they put two and two together is when I find social situations to become really uncomfortable because there's a number of reactions that can come from it. One, 
it turns into an interview and we go away from the social setting and environment. Or the other one is they completely change and don't know how to interact with me. And so the conversation just stops. Or the other one is they just don't know how to engage past that point. So I actually find socializing at some, at a lot of times really difficult for that reason. And so um, when I transitioned out of sport and all those changes were happening in my life, that was probably one of the hardest parts because I already didn't have a big circle of friends that I could really rely on. Mm. And whenever I stepped out into new circles, I didn't know how to socially engage and interact with who they thought I was because they didn't know who I was and we just didn't seem to, I wasn't able to navigate those conversations to um, feel comfortable in. Because I, I see sometimes, particularly when four Olympic medals in, in four separate Olympics in an individual event is something no one has, a, no one else has ever done that. All right. But then, yeah. you know, you get with male athletes and, you know, it's anecdotal, but I'm sure everyone will know what I'm talking about. If you take enough wickets or you score enough goals or you score enough tries or you put the ball in the back of enough nets, you can be a bit of a fuckwit and people will just let you get away with it because, oh yeah, but remember that catch? Yeah, what a catch. <laughs> Did you ever find that you had that latitude? Nah. Not saying you're a fuckwit in public, but like, did you ever notice that around the elite kind of level? That I had latitude? Or, or in, in other athletes. Did you notice that in other athletes? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And at times I found it very frustrating too, because in some ways I felt like I had to work harder for less as well. And I adjusted my lifestyle to, in some ways, appease the social perspective, so to speak. You know, I never went out and drank. And if I did, I went with a very tight knit group of people who were aware of how I felt in those situations. And I never put myself in a compromising position at all because I knew if I stuffed up once, that's it. I'd probably lose sponsors. I probably would have to be working for the next however many years to fix that essentially. So yeah, it can be very frustrating and sport's really a competitive environment. We're not just talking Olympic sport, we're talking about all the domestic codes as well. And you know, so in some ways the domestic codes get more attention, more sponsorship, more profile than international Olympic level competitors. And for us, the judgment can be much higher. Yeah, far out. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. You, you write about this in your book, and I, I've actually spoken to another Olympian, actually, who 
she actually made it all the way. She was another Queenslander and she had this idea of this grand, beautiful retirement at the Gold Coast where she, you know, did the lap of honour and, and said goodbye. You had that in your mind that you'd make it through Rio and, you know, you'd say goodbye two years later on the Gold Coast in, in 2018. When it became evident that that wasn't going to happen, when the plans that you had in your mind, when the because I know visualization is a massive part of any athlete's life. Obviously, you'd visualize this as well. When that started to get evident that it wasn't going to happen, what was going on for you? There was a lot of emotion at that time um, for a number of different reasons. The perfect fairy tale ending, like you said, would have been at home on the Gold Coast in Queensland where it all began for me in the event that kicked it all off with all the people who had made an impact, you know, because a lot of people see me as an individual athlete and you're selfish and all that sort of thing. But it takes a lot of people, even for an individual athlete to be successful. And I really more wanted it for them because not everyone could come to an Olympics. I couldn't afford to get all my family to an Olympic Games. My parents have been to two. My siblings have been to none. I remember I got my family just to one Com Games, which was in Melbourne, a home Com Games and a home worlds, you know, outside of that, they were sitting by the phone waiting for a phone call for with results. And so it guts you a bit because you do start to live the moment before the moment actually happens, so to speak. And then when that changes, be it drastically or even a slow period of time, it can be hard to readjust the goalposts or the scope or the vision. But for me, Rio was my saving grace for a lot of reasons, but it was also a very difficult finish line to get to. By the time I got there, I felt like I had blood coming out of my fingernails from clawing to get there type thing. You know, it's the best way that I could describe both the desperation and the impact of making that happen. And so, yeah, it was hard to watch the Com Games on the Gold Coast, really hard for a number of reasons. It was good because I had my name on the velodrome. That was very, very special. It was put there by public vote. Even that was hard to comprehend for me because I'd not long buried my coach who had passed from motor neurone disease. And all I could think of was this man for 10 years had busted his ass for me to be successful and he ended up with his name on a tombstone and I ended up with my name on a velodrome. And so that's how analytically and deep I think at times of situations and moments. And so also the first time in 20 years, I wouldn't be on the track. I'd just be in the track. And I didn't know how I was going to feel about that to not be a part of a team that I had made my home and my family for a really long period of time. The anticipation of it was worse than actually being there. And once I got there, I was okay because I had my sister with me. I realized as someone watching, I could have a, a wine or a beer. I could heckle the palms. I could have start to engage with my sport in a completely different manner to how I had for the last two decades of my life. And I actually had a really good time, but it was a very different experience of what I wanted that to be, for sure. So on the other side of, of Rio, as I mentioned at the start of this conversation, you're on the plane home, you got a business class seat because you, you want a medal, so that's nice. You get off the plane and... You know, I think in the in the Motley Crew book, The Dirt, they say someone should write an instruction manual of what to do now you've come off tour. <laughs> and I certainly, I know I know what it's like to be on tour. You're like, great, I have a structure. I have a routine. This is what I do every day. And then suddenly you're like, 
What do you mean I have to make up what I do today? What do you mean I it's up to me? <laughs> Once you were free of that structure, and I think this is what I think a lot of people might be able to benefit from your your experience in. What did you first start to grapple with when you did retire? Once the structure of training had all gone away and and your days were very different and and you weren't getting up at a sparrows just to, you know, get on the bike. What was it that you really struggled with and what started to make it better? The first thing I started to struggle with was the immense freedom that I all of a sudden had and how happy I was to feel like I had choice in everything that I could possibly do in the day. And it's not that I didn't have choice before. It's just that through my choice of being involved with sport naturally came the structured routine and delivery each day of making a set goal happen. Without a goal, without a direction, without a place to go every day, I started to become overwhelmed by the freedom that I had and miss the routine and structured life that I had become accustomed to, even though I knew I was prepared to leave it behind me. So I became quite confused with, if I knew I was prepared to leave it behind me, why am I struggling so much to let it go? And why is it impacting me in such a way? you know, right down to food choice. You know, I remember I woke up one morning and I thought, I'm going to have a bowl of Cocoa Pops, a lamington and a block of chocolate just because I can. Because 12 months before the London Olympic Games, I didn't eat a single bit of chocolate and now I'm going to make up for that. (laughs) But you feel pretty shit pretty quick after you do stuff like that. And we don't like feeling shit. I also knew and understood that change is really hard to both accept and adapt to. I've had to deal with change in a number of ways throughout my career. And I know that I don't like change because it shifts me from what I'm comfortable and used to to now all of a sudden something I'm not used to and therefore I feel uncomfortable. What started to make me feel better was I started to put structure in my day. Like I actually gave myself a wake-up time. I would start to write a list of what I wanted to achieve in the day, even if it was insignificant to many people. Like today I will bath my dog. I will also put on a load of washing. I plan to eat a ham and salad sandwich for lunch, not a whole block of chocolate. (laughs) And I will make a phone call to a family member, you know, just little goals that I could check off a box each day and feel like, oh, I achieved something today. I got something done. Then what I started to find difficult was understanding why all of a sudden I disliked something that I know that I loved and had loved for so long. So I didn't want to touch my bike. I didn't want to go for a ride. I didn't want to be physically active. I didn't want to engage in that environment again. And I couldn't understand it until I realized I've never recreationally participated in sport. I've never done it just cause. I've never done it because I want to, or it will make me feel good. There's always been a national title, a world title, an Olympic title, a team behind me to make it justifiable for physical exertion. So when my teammates were even saying to me, I'll just ride to the coffee shop and have a coffee with us and ride home, I was just like, well, why? Because I can get in my car and still get the coffee and the banter and drive myself home. I don't need the bike anymore. And then I realized I was missing the endorphins that came from physical activity, which added to me feeling more shit on top of the shit food that I was eating, on top of the lack of contact with my team that I didn't have. And then me being me, I like to really understand what I'm going through or trying to articulate what it is I'm feeling. And what I got down to was this, that sport when you're in it, whatever your profession is at this time that you've lost perhaps, for me sport was my profession. It was a really big world to be a part of. It ran like clockwork. Lots of people made it happen. You were well supported with lots of attention. 
and a lot of adulation. And in that resulted some really high experiences. And what I realized is when I left that world, that the world of life is a far bigger world (laughs) with far less people who care, who can give you the time and attention required to make you, you know, feel good, be reaffirmed with what you're doing. And this whole notion of normal feels low in comparison. So I, I, I had to recomprehend what normal was. And while I was trying to recalibrate that so-called normal and understand my relevance in that life without sport, without cycling, and my identity in some ways, because I'd lost that through losing my career by choice, <laughs> was having to watch that circle function and carry on without me. And that's a big admission on ego and pride to admit that because I wanted to be missed. I wanted at least them to trip a little bit, you know, (laughs) and they didn't. So I had to accept that and it it took a bit of time to both nut that out and accept it as well. Far out. (laughs) That last five minutes was just like the most epic. Sorry. Don't be sorry. It was amazing. (laughs) And so you've clearly thought a lot about this. You've obviously done a lot of heavy lifting. You mentioned that to come back out into life, I can only imagine that the one real benefit of being a professional athlete is that the definition of success is so abundantly clear, whether it be this goal BMI, this goal weight to push, this goal time to get, this amount of hours on the bike, I'm going to cross a line in this amount of seconds, thousands of seconds. The definition of success is like, well, it's it or it isn't. That's it. But life out and about isn't that. Mm. And trying to go for these nebulous ideas of this might be the thing that I want, suddenly the focus isn't as sharp and goodness, that must have been a struggle. Yeah. Well, it's not just that the focus isn't as sharp. The thing that I found also hard was that when you seek help or you talk to people, people like to share opinions. And when when opinions come at you, it can quieten your own voice inside as to both instinct, desire, passion, and what's valuable to you. You start to question, maybe I should go back and study or, or maybe I haven't done enough in, in my life. It's, it's just sport. You know, come on, get over it type thing. But anytime you put just in front of anything, you devalue and decredit whatever follows, you know, just a bronze medal, just sport, just a relationship, just business, just a job. To me looking in from the outside, it is just a job. It is just business. But for the person on the inside dealing with that loss or that change or that challenge and adversity, you've really just crushed the one thing that they have passion for. And so that person will then start to close off engaging with you because you, you aren't able to empathize with the value there and therefore the loss and residual challenges as a result. So, yeah, it's I do go very deep with some of that, don't I? No, it's, look, <laughs> but it's the tale of an athlete losing the plot on the other side of a professional career, whether it be NFL, NBA, NBL, cricket, whatever, that story has been told a thousand times of the the bloke who's 40 kilos overweight sitting at the bar, staring up at a screen going, oh yeah, could have been there. But to not end up like that seems to be that's the hard work and that's the achievement. The other way is that that's, you know, I've never been a professional athlete, but I can, I guess that those warning signs are there for you, that at some point you've, you had to have realized, crikey, I'm on this path and this is a well-trod road. I know where this ends up. Yes. Absolutely. 
I was very aware that athletes struggle when they leave sport through that transition. And I thought I'd done all the right things. You know, I'd I'd seen my career in education counsellor. I had opportunities to go into for work. I had plans for my path after sport. But what I didn't realise and no one told me was how I was going to feel when that change happened. No one explained to me that I would experience in some ways loss and grief. And everyone responds to grief and loss in, a, in very different ways. And it doesn't mean that someone's grief or loss or change in career or aspect or path in life is greater or less than anyone else's. At that time when you're feeling it, that's the scope and the standard, you know, for you as an individual. And so you, you need to be around people who care and empathize at that time. But yeah, I, I very much uh, was aware. I very much knew. I've never been too proud to ask for help. And I got to a point where I realized that I needed it. When you did start to get to work, did you approach it with a similar zest and discipline? (laughs) Yes, I did. And this was where I got into trouble, not into trouble, but where most of the work had to be was in learning to not be so hard on myself, not be so self-analytical, critical, judgmental. You know, you miss one one thousandth of a second. You'll go back to the drawing board and look for every tooth and nail that you can pull together to cross the T's and dot the I's to make that one hundredth of a tenth improvement for next time, maybe two hundredths of a tenth improvement for next time. And I realized that most people (laughs) operate, say, between 70 and 85% in, in everyday life. And I couldn't comprehend how that was acceptable. I'm always punctual. If you're not 10 minutes early, you're 10 minutes late. And I couldn't believe how many people couldn't turn up on time for events and meetings. I was six minutes late for our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But you see, I've relaxed on this, Osha. I'm quite okay with that. I appreciate it. (laughs) I appreciate it very much. Just so you know, I wasn't lying. I still have my gaiters on. I've been out in the front yard digging holes. I was like, fuck, I've got to get inside. My fingernails are covered in dirt. (laughs) Sounds like a nice day. Yeah, it was was fun out there. Uh, But yeah, so getting used to everybody else not, of course, people don't act like that because they're not elite athletes <laughs> whose entire career prospects rely on being that one one thousandth of a second faster than the other person. And they're not looking for every little nuanced advantage they can possibly get in their day. They're just like, oh yeah, it's there. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, if I didn't get it, I felt like I failed. Right. Yeah. So this whole notion of being what was successful and what was not had to be completely recalibrated from that point on. In this time when so many people are facing unemployment or underemployment or the prospect that their industry may not recover for some time, if it recovers, uh, which is heavy, but that's what we're looking at. Yeah. The idea that, who am I? I'm a cyclist. And that's a really easy answer because it's a one word, two syllable, three syllable, cyclist, cyclist, depending on what country you're from. It's a Mm. one word answer that instantly puts a picture in someone else's mind. This is what I do. This is who I am. This gives you an idea exactly of what my day and my structure is like. Once that definition goes away, how do you start to rebuild that definition of yourself once that stops? Because a lot of people may be going for the first time, oh, my sense of purpose, my sense of you know, I never had to think about that stuff because what I did was every day I got up and I went and, you know, worked on cars or changed tires or whatever. Now I don't do that. 
Mm. What am I doing? What am I here for? Like, what would you have to say around trying to put your sense of purpose back together? Um, in, in my experience, I had to try and separate what people thought I should, could, or would do as Anna Mears, the cyclist, and what I wanted to do as Anna. And that, in some ways, was brought to my attention by my partner, Nick, who said, you know, what will make you happy? What will feed your soul at this time? And it took me a little while to kind of nut, nut it out and work out where I might be interested in different things. But I knew I always loved art. I had been good at drawing and painting since I was a kid. I had not done it since school. So I looked into art and I just joined a class. I just started with joining a class and learning from the bottom again and being prepared to be at the bottom and work my way up. And I also knew I wanted to have the experience of family one day, but at the time I was single. I'd only just started in a relationship with my partner, Nick, and adoption in this country is pretty non-existent, especially if you're a single person. And so I was kind of steered by a friend into looking into fostering. And I went to a foster information session. It was the first time since I retired that I was smacked in the face by a piece of information that struck a chord with my heart. And it was just simply that this one organization needed to house 600 kids a night in South Australia alone. And I, I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that we live in Australia and in this state, 600 kids have nowhere to sleep at night safely. And I thought, if I can impact one child's life for a short period of time in a positive way, surely that has to be a good thing. And that was where I started to engage in a new passion. Believe me, I've tried a few different things and they didn't speak to me. And I, I started and I stopped and I went on to something else. But it takes time. And that's the frustrating thing is there's actually no measure on that time. We all want a time measure on it. When am I going to know what's going to happen? When am I going to know when I'm going to pick up a new skill or a new job or a new career and all those sorts of things. And, and that's hard to let go of in order to let yourself find it in the first place. In context of what people are experiencing now, and you said the word in the question, Osha, you said if those things happen. And if is good to think about in terms of contingency planning, you know, in big picture stuff. But in situational response, if is a really crippling word to use because it invokes a fear response and, and fear and doubt. And for me, I learned the difference between what if and what is through my accident that I had in 2008 because I was two millimeters from a clean break at my C2 level. And in learning that, I was instantly struck by fear. You know, what if that two millimeters hadn't have been there? What would my life be like? Do I even want to ride a bike anymore? I don't know how I'm going to go about doing it. If I get back on the bike, all these what ifs came into play. And um, my coach just simply said to me, you're asking the right question, but you're using the wrong word. Don't ask what if, ask what is. And the simple difference is, is, is the tangible, real information you can use today to make a decision if is fear-based, emotion-based. And emotion clouds our ability, firstly, to see the information, to be able to logically utilize it to make a decision going forward. And um, I'll give you some examples. What if the coach puts me in front of the goals and I miss it for my team? What if I go for a job interview and I don't get the job? Like those things haven't actually happened yet. But if you focus on that as an outcome, often you'll follow the process to make it happen. So 
for me, that two millimetres, I was like, what if that two millimetres hadn't have happened? Whereas the is of that situation was simply the two millimetres saved my life. You know, so you can look at one situation from two vastly different standpoints that will land you in two very different places. And I learned to ask what is in relation to a situation that I've been facing. It's not easy (laughs) because you have to really learn to set aside emotional responses. But at the same time, it, it does help you get through situations. I guess it instantly snaps you into acceptance too, doesn't it? It does. Absolutely. Because we could be like, well, I haven't got a job right now. What if I never have a job? What if, you know, the, what if they say, I'm in my own example, what if they don't renew this particular show? I've got this mortgage. What if, what if, what if, what if? And it snowballs. And it snowballs, yeah. And trust me, oh my, my brain is pretty damn good at that. But what is, okay, what is? It's like right now I've got the end of the job still there. Right now we're still in production. You know, right now things are okay today. And I guess what I have to remind myself is that I've been unemployed before and I coped then, I'll cope again. And it's, I guess it's just reminding yourself that you'll cope. Mm. Yeah, and um, not, not to visualise the bad situation for me, not to visualise the bad situation as, or the, the unwanted situation as something to be afraid of, but just to go, okay, well, if that happens, oh, then I'm using the word again, shit, Anna. <laughs> you tied me in a knot here. It's really hard, isn't you it? You tied me in a knot, but I like it. I really like it. That's a really good thing. What about when it comes to... You know, you mentioned, and I love that you mentioned the granularity of your checklist for the day. I most definitely can relate to that. There was times when I was really sick. There were times when my checklist literally read, and pardon me if you're eating, wake up, wee, make coffee, poo, run, eat, shower. You know, (laughs) it was that. Put shoes on. Like, it was that granular. And I would do it the day before. I would write that list out all the way to bed. And then the next day, it means that the next, I had to make no decisions. I just had to do the next thing on the list. Because when I I found myself, when I was out of, you know, oh, what do I do now? That led me to befuddlement and I would sit there staring at the walls for an hour if I got trapped in it. But if I just went, what's next on the list? Oh, okay. That's what I'm doing now. And I can really relate to that as a technique as far as writing things down. Speaking of writing things down, I know you wrote a lot as a part of your, I'm going to call it recovery from being a professional athlete. (laughs) You wrote a lot during that time, how do you find the writing helped you and, and why would you say that other people might want to give it a go? Yeah, this this idea came from my dad and also my psychiatrist at the time, my psychologist, Rita Princey Hubbard, was to, for me, the reason why writing was kind of offered as a outlet was because I was fine in the day. Like you said, I, I had a checklist. I had things to do to focus on. I had people that I could tap into and engage if I needed to burn more time in the day. But as soon as it came to night and late night, when everyone is asleep because they're on a good cycle themselves in their day, it was too quiet for me. It was too quiet for my head. And my head would just go into overdrive. Like I'm quick on a bike, but you you put me at a quiet night when I'm emotionally not in a good space and my head will just run away with me. And writing is a really good tool because you cannot write as fast as you think. And what writing does, writing every thought, every word that comes into your head, 
is it makes your mind slow down so that you can your hands can keep up pen to paper. And what it also does is it allows you to fatigue yourself through the process of all that stuff that's going around inside the head. And then you just close the book. Once once you get tired or once you emotionally exhausted yourself, I just close the book. By closing the book, I could finally just sleep. And times I would wake up in the morning and I'd reread it. And I'm like, holy shit, was that really what was going through my head at the time? Yeah. And then the other thing is when you find someone that you can trust, that you can verbalize those thoughts to, it's very different hearing it in your own head to actually hearing it out aloud. And you can catch yourself in lessons when you give yourself or have someone that can soundboard in that way. And for me, that's what writing was about. Writing was simply just to get all the shit out of my head and slow it down to a point where I could rest. Mm. And some of it was very confronting, which is why when I felt capable, I burnt it because it was only to help me. It's not for any other reason or any other person. Yeah, you're just taking out the rubbish. I find you just—that's what you're doing. Yeah. You, you get do I a get, bit of dusting. I got to do it every morning. <laughs> I, I have to do it every morning. I put Wolfie in his little octagon. He's got a little rage cage that he sits in, and um, while he's working on his poo, I uh, <laughs> well, he's got it. He's got to move around. He's a little boy. He doesn't have the. He's got to get it moving to get it come out. Yeah, no, I totally get it. I just I write it all down. I write it all out, and I I rarely, if ever, go back and read it again. Yeah, but it's just like it's taking out the rubbish getting it out of your head. We've been talking for a while and I know, you know, we're both on baby o'clock. So I did want to ask, have you found a way to just take a bike and just go riding and just go from a place to place now? Do you find a yeah. joy in it again? Yeah. I, I bought an e-bike. Oh, ripper. <laughs> Even better. Technically, a lot of people might say that I'm cheating. Ah, oh, stuff them. But... They can get stuffed. <laughs> <laughs> is the wind in your face? Are endorphins and is serotonin and dopamine getting into your body? Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. Have at absolutely. you. Absolutely. Absolutely. It takes out hills. It takes out headwinds. It brings back the fun of the act of pushing pedals. I actually go out with friends probably once or twice a month on a weekend. We chat, we banter, and I go home and I sleep really well. And I have, like you, just gotten onto Zwift and I hate ergo training at the best of times. Like that memory for me is brutal. It's painful. It's all about lactic acid. But I've actually connected with a lot of people on online virtual world. So I'm a little bit addicted to that at the moment. I've only just put my trainer back together upstairs. And, you know, I rode with a bloke the other day who's like, nah, everybody's on it. I'm never going near it. Never. You have to kill me before I go. And I was like, mate, I've got 45 minutes while a baby naps. All right, that's it. If I was actually going to go out on the road, 20 of those minutes would be putting all the shit on. (laughs) (laughs) Or pumping up your tyres or fixing a puncher. (laughs) Forgot to charge the thing and my bloody thing won't find a satellite now. Fuck, I can't because if it doesn't happen on Strava, it doesn't happen. So fuck, you know. (laughs) This way, I just leave the shoes up there, bib goes on, shoes go on, bang, and I'm riding and... uh, what I love about it, I get to ride with my – we've set up two trainers next door to each other, so Audrey rides with me um, in the middle of the day when Wolfie's having his sleep. But I can also ride with my brother up in Brisbane, which is great. We just get on Discord and, and have a chat. Though I am kind of interested to know if they're ever going to put a velodrome on Zwift. That could be uh... – <laughs> Yeah, we just have to make sure we turn left. Not good at turning right. It's just always left. Come on, surely it's not like like driving. Surely all velodromes turn the same direction. Yes, they do. Oh, thank God for that. 
Oh, thank God. Thank God for that. It is a fun, like I never considered myself a gamer, but I sent a screenshot of what I was doing to someone the other day going, like, what game is that? I'm like, I guess it is a game. Yeah, it is. It is a game. And I, I enjoy it. I enjoy it a lot. And um, yeah, that's where I listened to it. I wrote most of my book on Zwift. Oh, wow. I rigged the laptop up in front of it and I just pedaled it, you know, just zone two for hours and I just typed <laughs> while, I was, while I was writing. It oh, was, that's very cool. It's a really good way to do my do your emails. It's a really good way to get your emails done. <laughs> we'll get your phone <laughs> Two birds of one stone, so to speak. Oh, yeah, it's the best. It was really good. And I could talk to you a lot. The book is an extraordinary gift and um, – you know, to to speak with an athlete of your caliber is a, is a real honor, and to speak with a female athlete of your caliber is even a bigger honor. And and that you're so generous with your journey and your book, and you're so open. The technique that you based your book on, you basically it's a very complicated psychological technique of like what would you do to find where's the age of your life that you would go back and before you thought all the shit started and what would you say to that kid and that's kind of the through line of the book is you talking to your 11 year old self I've done that in the privacy of a psychologist's room and just snot bubbles of tears came out of my face like it was full on that you were brave enough to put it out there for the world to read is an extraordinary gift and I, I recommend that other people would read it and just perhaps take a moment to understand that there's many ways you can go about putting things from your past back together and rationalizing it as an adult. And you've done a great service to put that out there. And I'm really, I'm just going to say that now to you. Thank you very much. That's huge. Thank you so much, Josh. I really appreciate that. Well, I know the weight that it is to lift and do that technique and that you would then base a book on it is... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> very brave and I'm I'm it's a real real grateful. Um well I guess I'll see you writing on the internet somewhere. I will yes. desperately try and keep up with you because my watts per kilo are just oh my God. I'm retired now. I don't go over a hundred, hundred and twenty watts. That's it. I just cruise. That's it. You want to go for a cruise? I'm I'm all in. You want to sprint? I'm out. <laughs> and you know what? You are allowed to say that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll try and get a meetup happening in nap time. Definitely. You got it. Anna, you're the best. Thanks for your time today. Thanks, Osha. That was Anna Mears. Oh, she's great. Anna, A-N-N-A-M-E-A-R-E-S. That's her tag on Instagram and on Twitter. Her book is called Now. It's available wherever you get your books. It's uh, out today. It's out at the moment. Go grab it. It's a killer read. We talked a lot about Zwift at the end there. If you do uh, pop onto Zwift, you, I'll be there. She'll probably be there. Um, I've really been enjoying getting on there while baby naps. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Do look after yourself. Try to take care. Be informed, but not obsessed. Make sure you take time to do everything else. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you on Friday. Until we speak then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.